morning. Nope. Now I'm on. Good morning. All right. Good. We're alive. We're alive and awake. Um, we are in Matthew six twenty-five. So if you want to turn there, and while you're turning, <clears throat> just a couple small notes. There's been a note about uh, membership applications. There's a few forms sitting on the back. So if that's a step you are wanting to take, you can uh, grab some of those forms in the back and work on that. And also, uh, they were a bit delayed this month, but if you're using the Table Talk devotionals, there's a few of those sitting back there uh, as well, if you want to grab, as well as the booklets that we're using for Sunday School. So grab whatever you want at the resource table that is uh, fitting for you. Okay, so we are in Matthew 6 on the very last section of the chapter, starting at verse 25, and we're going to go through to the end of the chapter. So once you've turned there, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of God. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They're neither tor- they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So, whether you've been around here for a while, or whether you're visiting, or whether you're new, you maybe know that we as a church, Trinity as a church, is self-conscious about finding ourselves in the mainstream of Christian history. We want to be known as a church that is biblical, that is evangelical, and that comes through in the long line of the Reformation, being reformational. We want to uh, familiarize ourselves with the history of what God has done with His church from the very early days through to our current time. And what we sometimes refer to today as reformational or reformed theology did not arise at the Reformation. It became a point of dispute and of debate at the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, but it was certainly not invented there. Evangelical Theology is as old as the church itself. It can be found in the fathers. It can be found all the way through. It's just that its nicknames happen because of historical developments. Uh, And so the the, the issues at the Reformation were important, uh, and we are in that continuing stream of the church that has been there from the very beginning. 
We want to be self-conscious about seeing ourselves as connected, not just to saints across the globe today, but also through the saints that have existed in history. And some of our Reformation heroes, whether it be Luther or Calvin or before them, Wycliffe and Huss and after them, Tyndale and the Puritans and so forth, uh, in their own time, they were nicknamed as being Augustinian, which means that they uh, were in the same tradition as the church father from the 300s named Augustine, and more importantly, he follows Paul. He follows Scripture. So it's important to see that these great doctrines are from Scripture and not from men. And whatever nicknames you do or don't like to use to describe certain doctrines, we do want to emphasize sound doctrine and also recognize that sound doctrine is for more than just logical satisfaction or for winning debates. Logical coherence is important. God is a coherent God. God is a logical God. So we we need to be logical. We need to be coherent. And having a robust apologetic and being able to explain the Christian faith to outsiders is also important. So I'm not downplaying those things. But this morning, as we look at a passage like this, I want to remind us that sound doctrine is not sound doctrine unless it is also pastoral. And one test of sound doctrine is that it is able to bring peace to our souls. In Sunday school, we have recently completed the chapter in our confession on divine providence. And so hopefully this is still fresh in our minds. And for those who haven't been coming to Sunday school, you can always catch up uh, and go through the booklet and come join us. But the study has been on providence, and I want you to think, when you see the word providence, we have a college not far away named Providence, uh, what word do you see inside the word providence? Provide. Provide. Providence means provide ince. God is giving us what we need. The doctrine of providence teaches us that everything that we have is a gift of grace from a kind and fatherly God. And he gives us everything that we need to enjoy his glory forever. I probably don't have to use all kinds of statistics or surveys to convince you that anxiety is a major struggle for many. I've shared here that I have struggled with anxious depression on a number of occasions in my own life. Uh, And my depression is always of the anxious sort. It leads to depression, and once I get to that point, the anxiety actually becomes worse. And I don't doubt that many of you can sympathize with that. You have a similar experience. And in my own experience with anxiety, with anxious depression, I have learned several important things. But the most important thing that God has taught me is the value of being saturated in His Word when we feel good. When we don't feel good, it is very hard to learn. When we don't feel good, we don't have the energy and the mental sharpness to really learn complicated, complex things. So I want to tell you, if you are feeling good, saturate yourselves in Scripture. Get deep into God's Word. We've just uh, sent out some Bible reading programs. Don't quit at the end of January. Read your Bibles. Saturate yourself. Become so familiar with your Bibles that if someone cuts you, the Bible pours out of your veins, to use a turn a phrase from John Bunyan. We need to get Scripture into us because we don't get to dictate when those challenges and those struggles come and all of a sudden we need to draw and we realize what's in us just comes out when there's struggle. The real me comes out when there's a problem. And if I want the real me to be someone who can handle this, I need to get God's Word 
into me, and so do you. One of the things I started to learn a number of years ago through a series of interesting providences in about the year 2005, there was one very specific topic of theology that garnered my interest. And I became so fascinated with this bigger world of theology that I was seeing that I just could not stop reading and learning and reading my Bible and reading other resources. Uh, And I work very much with the fire hose method. Give it to me as fast as you can. I was exhilarated by all the things I could see, all the connections I saw in Scripture, all the helps that God has given to His church through the years. Some of my deeply held questions that I had when I was a child, all of a sudden when I could reach outside into different traditions, all of a sudden things started to become coherent. I became familiar with people like the Puritans and the Reformers and the early church fathers that answered my questions in a way that no one in my personal life could answer. So when I encountered some of this stuff about providence, I was blown away, and yet there's part of it that means I have to give up control. And I did not like that part. I did not like that part. And I probably still don't. But through some friendly debate and discussion with a relative who took me through Ephesians 1 and 2, who took me through John 6, 10 and 17, who took me through Romans 9, I finally got to a point where I said, okay, if I'm committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and I'm committed to the laws of logic and I am deeply committed to both, what he is saying is correct. So I'll check that off. It's correct, but I don't have to like it. <laughs> okay? I can be really grumpy about this for a really long time, knowing he's right and I'm wrong, but I don't have to like it. But then in the year 2007, I had a barn full of cows, a mountain of debt, a wife who was expecting, and two little kids, and the pressure broke me. I spent a winter doing nothing but eating and losing weight, working, crying, and trying to sleep unsuccessfully. And people around me, and most particularly my wife, found a way to support me, despite being needed herself by two little toddlers and while being pregnant. And in that time, I would go to the barn, and I would get my work done, but it was this bizarre experience where it was almost like I was floating at the end of the barn watching myself get my work done. And in that time, I saw God's providence in a way that just mere intellectual assent didn't get through to me. And I saw that this isn't just true. This isn't just what Scripture teaches. This is good. This is beautiful that God cares for us. And I hope all of you learn more easily than me. The pattern of my life would suggest that I am firmly committed to learning things the hardest way possible. Hopefully you're faster learners. But what Jesus teaches us here is obviously true. Jesus does not teach untruth. We also know that what Jesus teaches here in this scripture is good because providence and care come from God and God is good. And it's also beautiful because of how tender, pastoral, and caring God's provision is for his people. And let's start right at the top. Verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, nor what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Last week, Aaron Boswell was preaching, 
And he did a good job of zooming out far enough in the Gospel of Matthew to show us some of the overarching themes that we see in this book. And when we read or we preach texts, what can happen in our minds is that we start to see things in little bite-sized pieces and we start to lose the big overarching connections. But here, remember, we've been in one sermon. This is one sermon from Jesus starting in chapter 5, which we started preaching on. I went and looked back. So we've been looking at one sermon from Jesus since November the 13th. And if you were there live, you had this all in maybe half an hour or an hour. Most recently, in this sermon, Jesus has taught on giving to the needy, on prayer, on fasting, and on laying up treasures in heaven. And all of these actions are directly related to putting our trust in God. When we are doing these things, we are demonstrating that we understand that we are not self-sufficient and that God is a God of all sufficiency. And so if Jesus' audience is tracking with him, if we here this morning are tracking with him, it should become obvious to us that we are under God's constant care and that we can really trust him. So therefore, moving to the topic of being anxious isn't just some random bit of information that's not related to the rest. It fits perfectly well. In verse 25, Jesus starts with the word, therefore. And so when you see the word, therefore, that means it's because of what we've just learned. Now, here's the application. So you could paraphrase the therefore in verse 25 like this. Since you know that the Father sees your private righteousness, since you know that he hears your prayers, since you know that he will give you daily bread, since you know he has forgiven your sin, since you know that he will keep you from evil, since you know he is guarding your treasure in heaven, there's really no need for anyone here to be anxious. Christ tells us that life is more than food and that the body is more than clothing. And this much is obvious. Food and clothing are tools that help us, but they're not life itself. Of course your body is more than your clothes. Of course your life is more than food. So this isn't saying that our lives and our bodies are, uh, aren't important. It's actually suggesting the opposite. It's saying that life and body are, are important, so we need to keep perspective of how much worry we place on things or on tools that are lesser than. And so Christ is using a kind of argument here that's called an a fortiori argument. That's just Latin for to the stronger. So he starts with something small and he says, if this is true on this little thing, how much more true is it when you get to a big thing? Okay, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so Christ starts with something small and relatively insignificant and then says that if something is true for something so minor, how much more is it true for something significant like you? If God's care for the birds can be depended on, how much more can we trust in his care? I'm not a bird watcher, but my understanding is that birds do not spend their winter working on spreadsheets and budgets. I've never seen a bird pull its air seeder out in March and start to make sure that all the bearings and everything is working. Okay? I don't see birds ordering seed to get their 10% discount. They don't do this. Birds aren't busy with plans. They're just birds doing what birds do. And God's governance over his creation is so meticulous that even without any forethought, without any planning, he sends a bird to land at the right spot at the same time that he sends a worm to the surface. That's the providence of God. That's the sovereignty of God in the details. Hey, bird, come land over here. I put a worm there for you. And sure enough, it comes to the surface just in time to feed that bird. 
Okay? God's providence isn't just a general thing, it's meticulous. It's in the details. And it's remarkable when you spend time in nature to notice the attention to detail that God has woven into creation. Uh, I was reminded of this again, hunting this fall. And the hardest time, at least for me in hunting, is you shoot your deer, and then you just have to sit there and do nothing for half an hour so he doesn't run away on you. And so a few of us were sitting in the cabin, and is it half an hour yet? No, it's about one and a half minutes. Is it half an hour? No, it's two minutes. And you just sit there, and, and how do you just sit there for half an hour and do nothing? And we were pretty sure that it was a good shot. We're pretty sure that the deer is somewhere, and there was lots of snow, so we could follow the blood trail, and this is all wonderful. But you know what was remarkable? Is that it was pointed out to me, look, I'm pretty sure the deer ran over there, because look at those crows flowing, flying overhead. Who sent those crows there? That's remarkable. Ten minutes after a deer is shot, there's crows overhead, so we know where to go looking. That's remarkable. God sent those crows to the right place. How do they know? There's no planning. They just know there's food there for them. It's incredible. And so if God puts this much detail, if he puts this much care into sparrows and crows, how much more for us? A crow is not made in the image of God. You are. In verse 26, Christ affirms in his question that we are of more value than the birds. And this may be a point of confusion in our own time. A combination of evolutionary teaching and godless philosophy has been catechizing children in school for several generations now that they're really nothing more than advanced animals. They're animals with thumbs. That's about it. And of course, ideas have consequences, and so what's the logical end of all this teaching? Well, the logical end of all this teaching is that you get slapped with a big fine for breaking a turtle egg, and other people's taxes are going to pay for you to kill a little image bearer of God if it's inconvenient to you. That's how this works, okay? When we talk about it's either Christ or chaos, we really mean it. How did we get to a place where turtle eggs are more protected than a little image bearer in what should be the safest place on the planet, its mother's womb? And that is the most dangerous place to exist in North America is in your mother's womb. We've got this so upside down. We've got it so backwards. Scripture is clear that man and man alone, and I include women, but man as in humans, is made in the image of God in a way that no animal is. Man is the crowning jewel of creation. We are God's magnum opus. And so perhaps because we are confused on this point, it keeps us from seeing how precious humans are in God's economy. We may believe that everything in nature is natural except for what? Except for us. Everything's natural. Crocodiles are natural. Flies are natural. Deer are natural. Man is somehow a parasite on creation. We get this upside down. In Scripture, the planet stands in service to man, and man stands in service to God, and we get this exactly backwards. Right? What do we say? Well, God exists for my good, and I exist to somehow serve the planet. We've got it upside down. And we have ideas that show how upside down we are. And that doesn't mean we abuse creation because we stand in dominion over it. We want to conserve it. We want to see it as a gift from God. Uh, But we do not want to see it uh, as though we are somehow parasites in God's creation. 
or that we need to feel guilty for using the stuff that God has given us in creation. And think about this. One thought experiment you can do is put yourself in the position of a parent giving a gift to your child. If you give a gift to your child and your child's response is, oh, how much was this? I hope, did you guys spend too much on me? No one has any joy in this situation, okay? It's a downer moment. What if your child opens that gift and says, wow, for me? Right? That's what brings a parent joy. This is this mutual feedback of joy between parent and child. And it works the same with God's glory. Okay? It's not that if God gets more glory, we have to be less happy with what he's given us. No, no, no. Be happy with what God has given you because that increases your joy, which increases his joy. Okay? The tagline for Desiring God Ministries is that God is most satisfied, or God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The happier we are in God, the more glory God gets. The more glory God gets, the happier I am in seeing it. And it's this endless feedback loop of more fuel to the fire. This isn't a pie graph where the more glory I get or the more joy I get, the less God gets. And so the goal of the Christian life is to be Debbie Downer. Not at all. The the, the goal of the Christian life is joy. Be thankful for what God has put into your hands. And God is a generous and gracious Father who loves putting good gifts into the hands of his children. Goes on to say, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So we've seen God feeding small birds, and we know we have been given much more dignity than them. We know God will care for us, so why do we worry? And Jesus gives a similar argument here, from the lesser to the greater, when he compares us to lilies and grass. So the birds have been given their food, and the plants have been given their clothing, their glory, their beauty, And we are more valuable than both. So surely we can trust the Lord for both our food and our clothing. And the grass was so beautifully decorated, and yet that grass finds its way eventually into an oven to be burned up for heat or for fuel, never to be heard from again. And how much more does God dress us and take care of us? And our destiny is not to be burned up and forgotten forever. Our destiny is to be put in the ground like seed, to be resurrected in glory, with immortality, clothed forevermore in the righteousness of Christ. How much more are we than the most beautiful garden? There's more glory in this room than there is in butchered gardens. Verse 31 says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows what we need, and he is sure to send it our way. So all that we accomplish by getting anxious is to harm ourselves. That's really all it does. It doesn't change the situation. It just makes us miserable while we wait. And I'm preaching to myself. And this is so natural. Anxiety is so natural. Worrying about things is so natural that think about some of the things you do without thinking about it. Okay? So you're playing golf. I enjoy golfing. And this is a hypothetical. This would never happen. But imagine I sprayed a ball off the tee. 
Okay, and it's going that way, and what am I doing there with my club? I'm going like this, right? Steering that ball that's already left with my body language. Does that accomplish anything? My posture does not act on that ball at all. Think about when little kids are scared of monsters under the bed, and they jump into their bed, and they cover themselves with a quarter inch of cotton. That's going to stop fangs and claws? I doubt it. Or here's one I thought of, too. Think of you're in, a, you're in a plane and you hit turbulence and then you grab the armrest as though that's going to be the great difference maker when you drop from 30,000 feet. How much sense does this make? And yet all of these things we just do by instinct. This is hardwired into us to think we can control creation and we cannot. God has given us every indication that he will care for us. And this pastoral truth should calm our soul because it is built on sound rock-ribbed, biblical doctrine. This is why we teach doctrine, not just to win debates, but to calm our souls. Get the doctrine in when you're feeling good so the pastoral applications happen when you're not feeling good, when you are tempted towards anxiety. And we've discussed this in Sunday school, but it's worth repeating here because the pastoral care here is deeply connected to the biblical doctrine. If anything has ever in history happened anywhere at any location in the cosmos, apart from God decreeing that it go just so, nobody here could trust any promise from God at any point in the future. If any person, any event, or force, or thing has the power and the independence to act contrary to God's decree, then it follows naturally that God's purpose is can be frustrated. And we lose our ability to trust his promises. I think too many of us see God's providence as though it's like God standing at the 50-yard line of a football game and good for us, he's cheering for our team. He's just cheering for us and so we may derive some moral support. Okay, good, God's cheering for our team but it's still a roll of the dice how this game is going to go. Some see God's providence as kind of working like your GPS when you miss a turn. Right? Well, it didn't go the way he want, but God's still somehow providential, so he's just going to recalibrate it based on this additional information he just got from you missing your turn. In fact, one very well-known evangelical apologist said this in a debate, and this should, this should make you anxious if this were true. God has to deal with the hand he's dealt. God works with the hand you deal him. Can you trust in a promise from a God like that? The cosmos are in our hands. We are the drivers of history. God's looking at it, and he's going to do the best with it. He can, but remember, his hands are tied. Anxiety makes sense if that's how the cosmos are operating. There are no uncreated facts. There are no uncreated circumstances that are independent of God. Think of this on a bigger scale with Judas and Pilate. What if they would have made a wrong turn and they would have released Jesus and now the cross is in danger of not happening? God can't save people because the plan's not working out. They escaped it. And some will say, well, then he'll just use the next guy. Well, what if that guy says no? And the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. The possibility is there that no atoning work happens. And how contrary is this view, 
this weak view of providence to the biblical view of providence. If you want, you can turn with me in Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. It shows how God is in the details. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, real guys with real names in real history, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The atoning work of Jesus is as rock-solid a guarantee as the fact that God is going to care for our other needs. If God has demonstrated this level of commitment to forgiving your sins, do you think he's going to forget about feeding you or clothing you? If providence works like a constant recalibration game, what happens if we die at the wrong time? What happens if history winds up at the wrong time? What if you get into the story, your span of 80 years, what if you get put into the story at one of those places where God is about three moves behind on the chessboard and he's trying to get control of the situation in your life? It would be possible that there's just this cold, impersonal machine grinding away and you just got caught up in it. That would be possible. Thankfully, that's not possible. God cares meticulously for his creation. He cares for his people. And his zeal for his bride and to make her beautiful doesn't just apply to hoped-for outcomes. It's a promise. God has eyes for his bride. That's his church, his people. He has eyes for no one else. He loves us. He's going to care for us. He's going to give us exactly what we need. He's promised and he will do it. And the whole promise of Romans 8.28, which is comforting for many people, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. All things. All things. Difficult things? Yes, all things are working for your good. In one older catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, says this, What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So there's the doctrine. So what? So what? Question 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? Answer. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, They cannot so much as move. That's providence. This is why you can trust the promises of Christ to get you all the way home. Verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we can say this is the main point of this passage, and it is. And in many ways, this is actually the whole point of Jesus' ministry as recorded in the book of Matthew. 
No theme occurs more often in the Gospel of Matthew than the kingdom of God. And this is why the great Puritan preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards emphasized that the whole duty of the Christian life is to be seeking the kingdom of God. And so seeking the kingdom of God first isn't about chronology. It's not like, okay, uh, I was unsaved, now I'm saved, so I've got the kingdom of God. Now that that's completed, now I'm going to move down the list to numbers 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. No, no. Everything we do is in service to seeking first the kingdom. So when you're going to work, you're seeking first the kingdom. When you're getting up at 2 a.m. to feed a little baby, you're seeking first the kingdom. When you put your work boots on and you go frame a house in minus 30, you are seeking first the kingdom. When you go play a round of golf just for the sheer joy of creation, you are seeking first the kingdom. Seeking the kingdom is earnest work, and it applies to everything we do. In every action that we do, we are seeking first the kingdom of God. What are God's purposes in this? And as we seek the kingdom first, we are reminded that we are designed, we run on the glory of God. And this means that whatever God sends our way is just exactly what we need. If we had the authority and the independence to know what was best for us, and God sent us something different than that, we would have a legitimate right to be frustrated. But we belong to God, both body and soul, so He knows better than we do what we need. So if something comes your way, it's good for you. It's there to make sure you make it home safely. And if you're praying for it and it doesn't come for you, that means you didn't need it. And it would have distracted you from seeking the kingdom. Many of us know about the songwriter uh, John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was a horrible, horrible man. A drunk, a cuss, a slave trader who somehow, to use Tim's language this morning, which he stole from Martin Luther, the hound of heaven got a hold of him. And John Newton was miraculously converted. A drunken, cussing slave trader writes amazing grace. That's the kind of stories God tells. And John Newton, deeply entrenched in the truths of the Reformation, the theology that came out of that, you see it in his music. Read the lyrics to Amazing Grace with open eyes and you will see how radical this grace is. In one of his private letters, he says, All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Everything is needful that he sends. If it came your way, you needed it. And nothing can be needful that he withholds. If you didn't get it, you don't need it. God's providence is perfect. And I think, hard as doctrine may be, this is one of those places where hard doctrine produces soft hearts. It's good for us to know we're not in charge. It's good for me to know I'm not the master of the universe, or frankly, even the master of my own life. And soft theology can produce hard hearts. Soft theology that doesn't address the sin issues in the human heart will create hardened hearts. It leaves us thinking we're in charge. And I think, as a broader society, I think it's worth asking if our current emphasis on a certain vision of self-care or of defining love on our own terms or of taking charge of our own destiny is maybe at heart of much of the epidemic that we have of anxiety, depression, and other mental and spiritual health problems. And by that, I'm not saying that medications or counseling or different routines and disciplines don't have their place. I think they most certainly do. 
but it means that ultimate solutions will only come in relation to Jesus Christ. Okay, so for my own depression, it's not like I got depressed because I wasn't on antidepressants. I was never on antidepressants. The depression has a different cause. My way of thinking about things, the sin in my heart, not trusting God, that's the root. And medications and those things can help to stabilize things to a point, but the root heart issues have to get dealt with eventually. Jesus identifies the solution to seeking first his kingdom. That's the ultimate solution. There is no salvation without a savior. And so however good all our different types of physicians are, they are at their best when they are pointing us to the great physician. And so one of the important truths that we see from seeking the kingdom first is something uh, that you've probably often noticed in your own experience. People who put secondary things first don't get what they're looking for and they miss the big important thing, which is the kingdom. People who seek the kingdom first not only get the kingdom, but all these other things are added to them. For example, think of the people you know on the search for happiness. How many of them are happy? In mathematics, you'd say it's approaching zero. <laughs> okay? It's approaching zero. People who put happiness first, they won't get it. And if they put their own personal happiness first, they miss the kingdom of God. That's the biggie on the eye chart. People that seek the kingdom first get the kingdom, and lo and behold, the tools for happiness, for contentment, often come alongside it. We get so much more thrown in. And I think one of the reasons we aren't swept away by the romance of doctrine, by the romance of providence, is because we are sinful, we are old, we're tired, and so we don't see the magic of what God is doing. We need eyes to see it. And I think even for myself, how many times have I seen crows circling around something and I never thought about it? Well, that's just how things work. But there's certain things that help us to see the romance in the everyday things that are happening around us. And there is romance and magic everywhere in the world that God created. No one has helped me more on this, probably, than G.K. Chesterton, whom I love. And if you're looking for something to read, read his book, Orthodoxy. It's truly magical. This is how Chesterton tries to re-enchant us with the romance of everyday life. Because we get caught up in it. You just get up, you drink your coffee, put on your boots, go to work, do it again. Go to class, do it again. Here's what he says. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning. But the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in small children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, because children have abounding vitality, Because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. 
It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is far younger than we. See the romance of everyday life? See the romance of getting kids on the bus and then seeing them off again? See the romance of making another meal and ten minutes later it's gone? This isn't just monotony. This is romance. This is the way God cares for us. When we put the kingdom first, we are able to see the romance of the ordinary. But we also see that even as all these things are added unto us, that it is also true that it is appointed for a man to die once. And the promise that all these things will be added unto you is not a promise that we will bypass death. It means that we will have everything we need for as long as God has given us. George Whitfield, the evangelist and preacher, this is remarkable, preached 18,000 sermons. He preached about eight times a week. He literally preached himself to death. And one time in America, he was feeling sick, and this wasn't all happy preaching. He was kicked out of the Church of England. When he would preach, people would come and they'd pound drums and they'd throw dead cats at him and they would come with their trumpets to drown him out because the gospel was illegal in New England, because the Church of England said it was illegal. So this isn't happy, clappy preaching. He preached through adversity. And he was sick and he was tired and people said, one more time, preach to us once more. So out in an open field, he stood up on a whiskey barrel and he preached one more message with all he had. And he went upstairs to the family that was taking him in and he exclaimed that until his work on earth was done, he was immortal. So he could spend himself. He's immortal until his work was done and he fell asleep and died that night. And I want to suggest to you, everyone in this room is also immortal until your work on earth is done. So spend yourself. Do something. All of us are going to die from something or another, and so it will be true that there is coming a day when the necessities of life will be withheld from us in some form or another. But having our eyes on the kingdom helps us to see that this isn't God rescinding His promises, but keeping His very last promise right to the very end. We've been meeting here for about a year. And how many people have we said goodbye to in just that time? I don't want to list it all because I'll miss someone. But there's many people here without a grandma or without a dad or without a brother, and that's happened recently. Most recently, Luke Dirksen. And to think of that, Luke is now Don's younger brother. Luke is far younger than us. He's seeing it for the way it is. He sees the kingdom in all its splendor and all its glory. God has not withheld his promises to his people. He has granted them one final promise, that the kingdom is theirs forevermore and they have everything that they will ever possibly need. And nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ will give us the eyes we need to see and to orient ourselves to the surroundings and to what our surroundings mean. Resting in Christ, trusting in Christ, enjoying Christ is the singular purpose for which you are made. And that's why we can say yes and amen to the closing verse of this chapter. Therefore, again, because of the doctrine, 
Now the doxology. Because of the sound theology, now comes the, the balm for your soul. Now comes the pastoral answer. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so we've seen how Jesus arrives at this conclusion. We're created to glorify God. And this means that all of our days are in God's hands. The psalmist says that before I was born, every day was written out perfectly. He's given all of us work to do, and until that work is done, you are immortal. So spend yourself on it. Spend yourself on it. Don't rust out. Wear out. Do something. Nothing can kill you until it's the time for you to go on to your reward. But if we're stuck in our self-sufficient little circle, pedaling harder, running faster, and grabbing tighter won't provide you with anything that God hasn't already given you. All it will do is rob your joy and make you less thankful. God supplies us with everything we need. And so what we do is we work out of that rest. We work out of that trust. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are good. Lord, you have numbered our days. You have seen fit to give us everything we need for every day that you have put us here. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just rest in sound doctrine because it's fun or because it's exhilarating or because it makes us feel intellectually superior. Lord, fill us with sound doctrine so we can draw on it when the storms of life come. Lord, and I pray for each one here. Storms are inevitable. Pain is inevitable. Lord, saturate us with a reverence for who you are and the way you care for your creation now so that we can draw on that when the waves come crashing against us. Lord, and then I, seek, I pray that we would seek refuge in you. I pray that when life is painful, when things are sad, we would see that this too is not out of control. You are caring for us. You are giving us what we need, and you will do it again tomorrow. And you'll do it again the next day. Lord, help us to see the romance of that. I pray that we would be lifted out of the monotony, and that we would see your kingdom, and that we would strive for your kingdom, and that we would make it our whole life's business, even in the everyday grind, to seek your kingdom first. That you would be glorified, and that we would be filled with joy even as we cry tears of sadness, Lord, that underneath that all is a joy and a glory and a gladness that we are yours forevermore. I pray that you'd be with us as we share a meal together now. Lord, I pray that there would be laughter. I pray that there would be joy. I pray that relationships would be built and strengthened. And I pray above it all that you would be glorified in the way we love each other and the way we care for each other well. Thank you for the food as well. We commit this all into your fatherly hands. And we all say as one people, Amen. So the charge is this. After teaching that God rewards humble holiness, teaching us to pray for the kingdom to come as we do God's will on earth, to trust God for our daily bread, assuring us that we are forgiven and can be delivered from temptation, and that He is storing treasure in heaven for us, Christ has taken us to the point where we can see that there is no need to be anxious. He does not say that food and clothing aren't important, but that they find their meaning in service to the kingdom. They are tools that preserve us as we fulfill the, God, the calling God has given us. As we put the kingdom of God first, 
we see what we are made for and how God is going to make sure that we fulfill that calling until it is complete. Food and clothes, for most of us anyway, are rather easy things to come by. It is for most of us a small job to secure them. But the kingdom of God, that's important, big, and not so easy to come by. From this perspective, Jesus is telling us to put down our toys and grow up. To leave the petty and the ephemeral for the weighty and the eternal. But the same Jesus who told us to put away our childish things that we might pursue his kingdom also tells us that the only way to find it is to have the eyes of a child. We find our way to the kingdom less by the adult work of mapping and climbing and carrying and struggling and more by resting. The kingdom is found, maturity is reached when we realize our utter dependence on his grace. Not when we manfully make our ways, but when we ask, again by his grace, if he would carry us. As he carries us, he washes us. He scrapes away the crust of our cynicism, scrubs away the stains of our self-sufficiency. And in God's economy, with each passing day, we grow younger, cleaner, and purer. This is the path he has laid before us. We traverse it less like heroic conquerors and more like a child exploring with awe the romance and the intrigue of his creation. And receive the benediction from Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And go in peace. Stay in peace.